are listening to the Prince College Podcast, a ministry of Prince Avenue Baptist Church, where our goal is to lead you to trust and follow Jesus. So I'm excited to to jump back into our series, as Adam said, Citizens of Heaven, and how being citizens of heaven doesn't only change our destination, where we're going, but it changes our direction, how we get there. So tonight we're going to be in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Adam just read it, so if you haven't already turned your Bible, uh, you can go and meet me there. And if you were here last week, you remember that Adam talked about this, this, idea, this, this idea of having a single mindset that Paul possessed. That mindset being that in unity we may strive together for the advancement of the gospel. So that's really what we talked about was the purpose of our unity. The purpose of our unity was to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. Tonight, we're going to pick up on that same idea, talking about unity. But we're not going to talk about the purpose of unity. We're going to talk about the basis of unity and the means to our unity. The basis, what makes our unity possible, and the means, how do we get there? With that being said, I'd love to to go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Um, Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Lord, I pray that you would just show up mightily. Lord, if your spirit is not here and if it's not working, Lord, this is all in vain. Lord, I pray that you would empower your words to the hearts of your hearers. Lord, I pray that you would be honored and glorified in me. In the name I pray, amen. All right, so University of Georgia, we're big college football fans. And I don't know how much of college football you keep up with outside of the University of Georgia. There was quite the phenomenon going on last year at the University of Colorado. Some of you might know where I'm going. Deion Sanders. He refers to himself as Coach Prime, so I guess we'll also refer to him as Coach Prime. If you don't know who Coach Prime is, he is arguably one of the best cornerbacks in the history of NFL football. He is a eight-time pro bowler. He holds the NFL record for career return touchdowns, and he's a Hall of Famer, all while he also played professional baseball. But what really interests me about Coach Prime, it's not really how he played football, nor is it how he coaches football really has nothing to do with the University of Colorado at all. What interests me about Coach Prime is the way that he parents his kids, which I know it really isn't my business, but you'll see that he makes it all of our business. Coach Prime has a regularly updated ranking of his kids on which ones are his favorites. And he posts it to the world. He updates interviews. He says, oh, this person moved up, this person moved down. And he has five kids, he has three sons and two daughters. And he keeps a ranking of which ones are his favorite. And I mean, there's no reason that I should know this. There's no reason any of us should know this other than the fact that he makes it known. It's almost like he he talks about it like it's almost a game, like just a little bit of friendly competition. In an Instagram post this last year, celebrating his son's birthday, he didn't say, happy birthday, Dion Jr., like we might expect. We might even expect him to say, happy birthday, son. But in the caption, he says, happy birthday to my favorite kid. That's pretty bold. But in other interviews, he has publicly updated the rankings and said that his son, Deandra, which is a Dion with a D-R-A at the end, is, is in last plate. And I, and I quote, per usual. I mean, that's pretty tough for Deandra. Not only does she know she's in last place, I know she's in last place. I'm telling you, it's pretty tough. Now, my wife and I, we're expecting our first daughter here in about seven weeks. About seven weeks. Close to it. And I can confidently say that she will be my favorite. 
But parents don't normally do this. We don't normally rank our kids. But Coach Prime, unashamedly addressing parents, says, y'all act like you love them all the same, but you don't. So unapologetically, Coach Prime admits that he does not love all of his kids the same. And his kids are well aware, as are we. They know their place on the ranking. And he said that he makes these rankings based on a criteria only known to himself. So his kids don't even know why they might be in last place. And as silly as this is, I think without realizing it, we equate how God views us really similar to how Coach Prime uses children. Like God chooses favorites based on some criteria that we might not know. Like it would be impossible for God to see us all the same and accept us all the same. And if we view God's love that way, it completely corrupts our unity, destroys it. And I hope to show you that how the basis of our unity here in Philippians 2 It changes how we see God. It changes how we see that God sees us and it makes unity possible. So with that being said, let's go to our first point. It's the basis of our unity. See, Paul makes an exhortation to unity in chapter one, verse 27. We looked at it last week. He says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he makes another exhortation to unity in verse two of chapter two, where he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. And in between these calls to unity, we have verse one. We have these four if statements. And we'll see that these four if statements provide the basis of our unity, the call to unity in verse 27 of chapter one and verse two of chapter two. And these four if statements are not if statements of uncertainty. He's not calling into question whether these things are true or not. Paul is describing the realities and benefits of our union with Christ. And these benefits are the basis of our unity with one another. He, is, he begins by calling to mind this shared foundation that we have as believers. He starts really with the gospel. See, the word used here for if can be equally translated as since. And then verse 1 would read, So since we have encouragement in Christ. Since we have comfort from love and participation in the spirit and affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So what Paul is really doing is saying, because these things are true of you, unity is possible. And he describes these four mutual benefits of being in union with Christ. Encouragement, love, fellowship with the spirit, and affection and mercy. These are mutual benefits, meaning that we all have them in Christ. They're not things that we have to compete for. There's not a limited amount of God's affection and mercy. There's not a limited amount of his love for us. We all share these things equally, the realities of the Christian experience, ever-present, ever-true realities. It's a shared foundation. God doesn't have to divide up his love for us. He loves, his love and affection for you are endless. His mercy is new each morning. Our fellowship with Christ is eternal. Our encouragement in Christ is full and available each and every day. These are not things that we have to compete for. These are things that we get to live in as believers in Christ Jesus. And these mutual benefits, this shared foundation is only obtained through the gospel by being brought into union with Christ. We see that in verse one. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, every time we see 
Paul used those words in Christ. He's referencing our union with Christ, that we have been reconciled to him. We've been brought near and our relationship with him has been restored. And it makes unity possible. The gospel doesn't only make unity possible in the first place, it completely does away with our need to compare and compete against one another. In a recent interview, Coach Prime, the one who ranks his kids, recently said that his son Shiloh, he jumped two spots, which means, I mean, there's five kids, that means he was in last. So he jumped two spots, way to go. And he says it was because he was consistently bawling. Just consistently bawling. He was performing well enough to jump two spots. Isn't that crazy? I mean, how would you feel if that was your dad? How would you feel if those were your siblings? I don't know about you, but if if Coach Prime was my dad, I would constantly feel like I had to compare and compete against people for his, his approval and affection. My siblings would become people to compare against rather than people to do life with. And practically at times, I think this is how we view God and his people. Like God really must not love me because I'm struggling. My disciplines are lacking. I'm struggling with this specific sin. But that person he must really love because it seems like they're just, they're all polished and they got it together. There's no possible way that he could love me the same as he loves them because I'm not performing that well. But that's not how God's love works. We, as believers, share these beautiful realities equally. We are totally and completely loved. There's no favoritism with God. He doesn't divide up his love among us so that we might perform for more bits and pieces of it. And knowing that that is true of us, that we are totally, completely loved, each of us in Christ, it frees us up not to compare against one another, not to rival each other, but to enjoy one another, to love one another because we know that we're loved. It's a, it's a unified experience because we're, we're experiencing the same encouragement, the same fellowship, the same affection and mercy. It's the basis of our unity because we don't have to compete There's no divisions. We're all loved by God in Christ Jesus, in this union. And then verse two, he he then begins to describe what this unity looks like. Where he says, complete my joy by having the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he mentions a few things here, but he's really getting after one idea. He mentions same mind, same love, in full accord, your translation might say, unite or Yeah, united in spirit and of one mind, or your translation might say intent on one purpose. The word here for same mind and one mind or purpose, it's the same word. And what this word does not mean is opinion. It's not calling us to share the same opinion on everything. Paul's not calling us to think that Whataburger is the best uh, fast food restaurant, even though it might be. The word used here for mind is really meaning to share the same attitude to share the same posture of heart, that we would all have the same framework for our feeling and thinking. That's why the same word here is used in verse five. Your translation might say, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. It's the same word used in verse two for mind. And that attitude is one that brings us together in love and in spirit. It's as if, it's as, it paints a picture of complete cohesion that Romans 12, four through five says, that we would be individual members, but one body. 
See, this word used for full accord, it really means one sold. And I was, I was having some trouble trying to figure out how I would explain this because that's not vocabulary we normally use. And as I was talking to Nick Jones, he kind of helped me understand it this way. That as Christ knits us together in our mother's womb to be one person, he is knitting us together as the body of Christ to be one person, reborn in the gospel together. That's the picture of unity that we're striving for, that we would have this same mind, this same attitude as we approach life together in, in love and in spirit. And we'll see that this is the attitude of Christ. And the attitude of Christ is the means of unity, which is our second point. So we have the purpose of our unity. That's that we might advance the gospel. We have the basis of our unity. That's what makes unity possible, which is the gospel. And then we have the means to our unity. How do we go from here to here? How do we go from divisive, rival, competing Christians to adopting the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus? So we'll first talk about what is this attitude, and then we'll talk about how Christ shows us that attitude. So first, what is the attitude of Christ? Well, I think we'll see what the attitude of Christ is starting in verse three, and then verse six will show us, begin to show us how he, how he shows that to us. So verse three and four, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So this, this attitude that leads to this shared feeling and thinking and way of life is humility. And I think humility might be one of the most misunderstood Christian virtues. I think when we normally think of humility, we might think of gentleness. You know, someone who is tender temperament. But although a humble person might be gentle, gentleness isn't necessarily humility. Nor is humility modesty. You know, someone who is always deflecting your compliments and denying your compliments because you're just, you're just too nice. But they really still love the praise. That's not humility either. Sometimes it's easiest to understand humility by looking at the opposite, which is pride. Now, Pastor Josh spent a good deal talking about pride two Sundays ago, so I'm not gonna spend too much time here. But if you missed that sermon, I'd highly recommend going back and listening. But the definition that Pastor Josh gave for pride was this, an idolatrous preoccupation with self. An idolatrous preoccupation with self. So you often think of pride as the, the way that it manifests itself. Kind of this, this stuck up inflated view of self. But we also talked about how pride can be insecurity this kind of depressive, this kind of inwardly focused because it's still focused on me. See, because at the heart of pride is me. We consider ourselves as most important. Both ends of the spectrum, a haughty spirit and a depressed spirit. It's ultimately a preoccupation with me. My desires, my needs, my wants take precedence. And I don't know if you're actually walking around telling yourself that you're more important than everybody. Some of you might be. But practically, this is how we live our lives. We're only focused through, our, through the needs and wants of ourselves. Now, humility also isn't hiding. It doesn't require us to, to hide our talents and to, to keep in the shadows and not let our abilities be seen. Humility actually allows us to use our talents and use our abilities for its ultimate purpose. And humility is also not self-hatred, self-neglect, 
or self-punishment. So what is humility? Humility can be one of those things that's really hard to wrap our minds around because we're just so used to thinking it through life based on ourselves, based on the perspective of how things affect me. We see others and we're not genuinely getting to know them, but we're, we're considering what they might think of us. We're serving in the church, but not necessarily to, to lay our lives down for the church, but to, to look good as a Christian, to check our moral conscience box. But I like Tim, I like Tim Keller's definition of humility. Tim Keller is a well-known pastor and author from New York, and he recently passed on to glory. But this is how he defines humility. Simple, easy to write down. He says, humility is self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. You might have heard it said this way. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I would add on, it's thinking of yourself less and thinking more of others. Because instead of a preoccupation with self, we are focused on those around us. Our motives, our minds, our attitudes, our hearts are now bent towards serving those around us, serving the body of Christ. Because in humility, we consider others as more important than us. And not just in action, but genuinely in heart. The heart of humility is always concerned for others more than us. And we see that perfectly in Jesus. There is no one that we can look to for a better example of humility. And we see the extent of Jesus' humility in many ways. But for time's sake, we're only gonna look at two tonight. We're gonna look at the way that he came and the death that he died. So first, we're gonna look at the way that he came, starting in verse five. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and he being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see first in verse six, a vital truth that Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with God, that Jesus is God. Yet he did not count his equality with God as something to be exploited, but he himself emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now that word for servant in the Greek is really translated slave. So Jesus coming from the throne room of heaven, not only to take on and limit himself to human flesh, but to put himself in the lowest status of the day. See, Jesus didn't come in the way that many expected him, which is part of the reason that they rejected him. They expected him to come as a political ruler, a champion of war, a king who would liberate them from political and cultural forces. Yet he came as a slave. There was no lower position that Jesus could occupy. See, this position was more humbling than a servant because a servant, he was hired to accomplish a specific task and he still obtained certain rights. But a slave, he belonged to his master. He owned no personal property. He had no life of his own apart from his master's will. See, it's humbling enough that Jesus, who is God, would come in the likeness of man. That he, who is all-powerful, would limit himself to things like hunger and tiredness and sleep. That's humbling enough. But he didn't come as a king. He came as a slave, obedient to his father's will. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Also, Matthew 20, 
Verse 28, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not to use too many college football analogies, but we, we all know Nick Saban. We know that Nick Saban retired this, this year. And although we have this great disdain for Alabama, we have to acknowledge Nick Saban is one of the best college football coaches of all time, if not arguably maybe the best. And the way that he retired, it makes sense. He retired before he ruined his legacy. We see many people who, uh, they're on top and they, it's their, probably their time to retire, but they kind of play a few more years or coach a few more years and they really just tank it and it kind of ruins the way that people remember them. But Nick Saban, he, he left at the right time. He left while he was on top. Well, he's still considered one of the best. See, that kind of exit, that makes sense. He didn't change his status. But what if Nick Saban, if we rewinded a couple years back to 2020, right after he won his, his seventh national championship, he left Alabama to be the laundry guy for your local 1A high school. That just wouldn't make sense. I mean, Nick Saban, seven-time national champion, one of the winningest coaches of all time, multi-millionaire, washing socks? That just doesn't make sense. That would be one of the greatest falls in coaching history. We would all acknowledge that the level of descent from national champion, legacy coach, to washing dirty socks and jerseys for minimum wage would be a large descent in status. Just imagine how much greater. The, the descent for the king of kings, the Lord of lords, all beautiful, all matchless, wonderful Jesus coming not as a king, but a slave. He's the only one worthy to be a king. But he chose to be a slave because he counts us as significant. He empties himself for us that we might be served by him, redeemed by him, satisfied in him. The way that he came, the status that he took shows the extent of his, of his uh, humility. But so does the death that he died. See, there are a lot of ways that Jesus could have chose to die, to pay for our, the penalty of our sins, but he chose a cross. Almost every translation distinguishes the way that he died. It says that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Any other death might retain some sort of significance, some sort of worthiness in that culture, but never crucifixion. This was the worst death imaginable. It was only reserved for the worst kind of criminals. It symbolizes the death that we deserve. Do you ever think about that? That Jesus took upon himself the worst kind of death, only reserved for the worst kind of criminals. Even the Romans who invented this type of death would not wish it upon anyone. But do you see your sin as that serious? That we would deserve the criminal's cross. That we, in our sin, are the worst kind of criminals. That our sin is against a holy God who is worthy of our surrender. We do not deserve a death of significance. We deserve the criminal's cross. And that by him coming in the status that he came, and the death that he dies shows the extent of his humility. And as we see the extent of his humility, the extent of the love that he has for us, it should move us, it should move us to humility ourselves because we see ourselves in light of this Savior, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, slain for us.
in humility, that we may walk in the same manner as he did, giving ourselves for others. See, through his death, we are unified in Christ for the purpose of advancing the gospel. Share in the sweet benefits of union as our basis for unity, and we walk in humble demeanor, counting others as significant to be served because we have been served by Jesus. One commentator says it this way. says, down came deity into humanity. And not just into humanity, but down came deity into slavery. And not just into slavery, down came deity into death, even the unspeakable shameful death, the accursed death, the death that speaks volumes of the rejection and wrath of God and man. Down came deity into the death of the cross, though deity itself did not die. Jesus is our example of humility. And walking in that same humility allows us to achieve unity that moves the gospel forth. But this is not often the unity that we see in the church. There are two things that Paul mentions that are the opposite of humility, and they destroy our unity. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. Both of these pursue the desires of me and the glory of me. The word he uses for conceit here is literally translated vain glory or empty glory. It's empty because there's no substance to it. We don't deserve the glory. It's also empty because we will never be satisfied by the praise of self. And living with this kind of selfish ambition to please ourselves, it destroys the unity of the church. It leads to pursuing our good and not the good of others. It pursues the advancement of self and not the advancement of the gospel. It's pride. And when pride enters the church, our singing becomes entertainment instead of worship. Our preaching becomes motivational speeches instead of God-exalting exhortation. And the, our congregants' participation in the church becomes consumeristic rather than sacrificially serving. Entertainment is about me. Motivational speeches are about me. Consumerism is about me. And a church about me builds people's self-esteem that they may walk straight to hell, but at least they feel good about themselves. Some of you might be viewing the gospel this way. A way to feel good about yourself. A self-help gospel, a self-centered gospel. A gospel that centers on me is a false gospel and it makes a devastating reality at the end of days. But when our worship and our preaching and our participation in the church becomes about God, we push people to surrender their hearts to Jesus, to live wholeheartedly for him to leverage their lives in such a way as in union with one another for the advancement of the gospel. And that's the church that we want to be. But it comes by being united together and adopting the same attitude of Christ Jesus, the attitude of humility, the attitude of self-forgetfulness and serving. As Christians, it's often easy to look at Scripture and see how the Bible teaches that our lives belong, belong to Jesus. But we often don't acknowledge that our lives also belong to the church. We see this throughout scripture, but specifically, let's look at 1 John 3. 1 John 3.16 says this. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We have been bought by the blood of Christ. His life laid down for us that we might lay down our lives for the church. Look around. Take a moment. Look around. Your life belongs to them. My life belongs to you. So often I hear people say phrases like, I'm sorry to bother you. 
I really just, I just don't want to be a burden to you. I hope that you can forgive me. Christ died this so that I might bear your burdens. I am forgiven so that I might forgive. I am loved so that I might love. Christ counts me as significant so that I might count you as significant. He serves me that I might serve you. This is how the Christian life works, dying to self, living for others. Is that not what Christ has done for us? See, one of the most freeing Christian realities is this. Your life is not about you. Your life is not about you. Most of us live completely self-absorbed. We're always thinking of ourselves. We even do good things, Christian things, things we're told to do with a heart that is focused on self. I'll give you an example. I grew up going to a Christian camp in my hometown, Cleveland, Woodlands Camp. Some of you might have heard of it. I loved it. I ended up working there. A part of this camp, my favorite part was the last night. It was called late night worship. It was Friday night. We would move all the, if you imagine a room like this, we'd move all the chairs out. It would just be open floor. We'd spread out wherever we want. And we would spend an extended time in worship, about an hour to an hour and a half, just responding in praise to what God has done in our lives. I loved it. And I remember one, specifically one summer, a member of the band came up to me and he said, hey man, I just, I was watching you worship the whole time. And I just, I just love the way that you worship." He didn't mean anything bad by that, but you know what my prideful heart did? It took that statement and it made worship about me. And really up until this last year, I struggled to worship that wasn't in a way to be seen. I was more concerned about looking like I loved God than actually loving God. My worship was self-ambition. Like Paul mentions those who preached out of self-ambition in chapter one. It became about being seen so that from the outside, it might look like I was being moved by the love of God. But that's just what I wanted it to look like. Do you see how backwards this is? It's because our lives were never meant to be lived about us. And by God's grace, he has slowly restored my view of worship. That I can worship freely and joyfully because it's freeing. It's freeing being able to truly come and sing praises to God actually focused on God. And when we walk in true humility, it's extremely freeing. Not just for the way that we worship, but for every area of life. Because we don't feel like we need others to be approved because we know we're approved in Christ. We feel like we don't have to do things a certain way and mold our actual character to be seen because we know that we're seen in Christ. It's extremely freeing. Because when we walk in, our, in true humility, it forces us to walk in our true identity. Walking in our true humility requires us to accept our true identity. Allows us to see ourselves in light of Christ. And the more and more that we see who we are in Christ, no longer do we need to try and perform. To earn a false sense of of love and affection. See, it takes us back to verse 1. These are shared benefits. We all have them. We are all totally and completely loved by God. And in our pursuit, when we pursue selfish ambition, when we pursue our own glory, we're really trying to get the things that are already listed in verse one. We're we're molding our behavior and we're doing things a certain way so that we might be seen and accepted because we just wanna be known, we wanna be loved. And I'm here to tell you, you are known. You are loved in Christ Jesus more than you will ever be by any man or woman. 
any institution, any friend group, any relationship, any marriage, any status of a job. You are more loved in Christ than any of those things could ever amount to together. And it's freeing. Because when we know these realities in Christ, we don't have to rival ourselves against each other. But we can, we can love one another truly out of a sense of love. There's so much freedom being able to live out of these realities instead of for them. And I hope you see the beauty of this call to unity. Through a heart of humility, I hope you feel encouraged to pursue this call. For it is truly freeing and it is truly joyful. And I want to give you two ways as we close. I want to give you two ways to grow in humility. And it doesn't really come by pursuing humility. See, if we pursue humility, we will not obtain humility. Humility is one of those things that we will not grow in if we are fixated on. Because the moment that we think we're humble is the moment that we're not. The moment that we think we're not prideful is the moment that we are. Tim Keller says, Christian humility flourishes in the human soul when we are standing in front of a window that looks on to the Himalayas of Christ's grandeur. And Christian humility vanishes when we close the window and stand in front of a mirror, trying to see the authenticity of our humility. It flourishes when we are looking away from it to Christ and it hides when we are looking directly at it. See, my goal tonight, my goal is not to get you to focus your attention on your humility like a mirror-like way. My goal is to provide you with an understanding of humility that will drive you to the windows of God's word, which reveal the greatness of Christ. See, we talked about how pride is an, it's an idolatrous preoccupation with self. In order to grow in humility, we must have a righteous preoccupation with God. In order to grow in humility, we must have a righteous preoccupation with God. Because as we see Jesus, we see the one being equal with God, emptied himself, humbled himself by coming as a slave and dying on Calvary's cross, the cross that we deserve. And as we look to him, we see one who is worthy of our submission. We see one who is highly exalted. Let's look at our, the last three verses of our text. Let's start in verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our humble Savior is our exalted King. And he reigns forever. And as we see him exalted over all, it should create in us a lowliness that seeks to serve him and serve others as he has served us. It should create a reverence for God that drives us into submission because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Christ as Lord. See, bowing indicates submission. It indicates the surrender of the lesser to the one who is greater. That he must increase and I must decrease. And we see that there is only one who is greater. There is only one who every knee will bow to. Only one who every tongue will confess is Lord. So I encourage you to look. Look in the morning and look in the evening. Look when you're weary and look when you're burdened at every season and every moment that we might look to Jesus.
we will only become humble as we look to Jesus. That's your first application. As Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we must look to Jesus. Secondly, if we're gonna grow in humility, we must pursue his glory. We must pursue his glory. Verse 11 ends with the motivation of Paul's call to our unity. It's the motivation for the advancement of the gospel. It's the motivation for our lives in union with Jesus. To the glory of God the Father. The purpose of our unity is not that we might just be nice and avoid conflict. See, the purpose of our unity is ultimately that God would be glorified in us and to the ends of the world. That we might declare him as beautiful and worthy. And our unity magnifies the worthiness of the gospel. Because not only does it show the power for broken people to be made whole, but for the, for the power of the multitude of broken people to be brought together in joyous harmony. Not living selfishly or for their own glory, but for the sake of those around them. For a purpose higher than themselves, laying down their lives. I so deeply want you to leave here and believe this. I want you to believe that he is worthy of your praise. See, too often we are more concerned with the image of humility than we are actually being humble because we're focused on ourselves. We're focused on the authenticity of our humility. See, we will only grow in humility as we look to Jesus and pursue his glory.